So oxytocin does a lot of things in our body. It makes us feel connected. So when we're making eye contact with people, when we handshake, when we touch, we have moments where we're like, oh, you do that? Yes, I do that too. Mm. That all produces this chemical that makes us feel the warm and fuzzies. And they found that if people do nose sprays of oxytocin, like they will participate, collaborate, and give away more money in Prisoner's Dilemma game. Oh my God, there's there's a whole market for this now. Yeah. The other thing that we're looking for is dopamine, the chemical of pleasure. It's also the chemical of motivation. When we feel excited about something, we want to learn more. This is why when I answer a question that I haven't answered before, it actually gives myself dopamine, right? Like I get to share a story I haven't shared. So my secret push for asking non-socially scripted questions, the secret reason I'm doing that is not only because you might find out something, it's also to wake them up that they might get to talk about something that gets them a little bit excited. And that, in a weird way, makes you more memorable. Hello, welcome to the Pretty Intense Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate you as a listener. And this is such important work to me. And so by subscribing and liking and commenting, you're telling me that you really like what, you, what you're hearing. So to get into it today, we have Vanessa Van Edwards. She is an author. Uh, she's a behavioral investigator that drives her books. So her first book was called Captivate. Her latest book is Cues, where she unpacks 96 cues that we have that we signal with our bodies, both um, there's four categories, verbal, nonverbal, vocal, and imagery. Anyway, fascinating stuff. So we talked all about just how we interact with people and the things that we're picking up and you know what what we can do to be able to just decipher whether someone is trustworthy, whether someone is faking it, taking advantage of us, all of the different things that we're dealing with, what's charismatic, uh, those human interactions that play such a big role. Uh, in fact, probably play, I'm going to say a significantly bigger role than you even realize in your life. And so the ability to be able to not only decipher them, but also to be able to cue yourself and to, you know, whether you want to relax or whether you want to get amped up or whether you want to be more in charge, be calmer, all of those things you can cue yourself too. So this is super deep, powerful work. And uh, Vanessa is a really cool character and she has some also funny stories to tell you. So can't wait for you to listen. Please hit subscribe if you like this. Please send to your friends if you like it too um, and you want to share with them. This is good information for for everyone to hear. Um, And leave a comment. Let me know what you're thinking. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. I just circled in like heavy pen the quote in uh, the paragraph in your first book, Captivate. I haven't read cues yet, but we're going to talk about oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. About the death of small talk. I was like, yes, please, everybody, death of small talk. Did we make small talk here at the beginning or was that not small no. talk? No, we, we jumped right in. Actually, I think that I would always rather jump to level two. And this is, I, forgive me, I'm going to bring up research in the first few minutes. I can't help it. You should. But, I, I love it. Bring it. Okay. Okay. So he, this research sort of saved my life. And by life, I mean my conversation which is that the research has found that there are three levels of intimacy when we're connecting with people. And level one is the area we're most comfortable with. It's called general traits. This is why at the beginning of every interaction, we're like, how are you? What do you do? Where are you from? And so that level one, we like to know those basic things about each other. Level two is where I get excited. It's called personal concerns, motivations, values, worries, what drives you, what gets you up in the morning. So level two, I find that if you can jump into level two, you actually skip 
all that level one autopilot. And so we got to talk right into, I, I accidentally, not even on purpose, shared a, a, a funny story about going to Costco vulnerability, which was actually level two. And so we got kind of bonding and talking. By the way, level three, which is like, whoa, it's like what we really bond, it's called uh, self-narrative, which are the stories you tell yourself about yourself. Level three is so intimate and so special that we don't even get to it with most people in our lives. But once you know the story that someone tells themselves about themselves, you can understand their behavior. So Mm -hmm. my goal in every interaction, hopefully today we can just jump right to level two and three, is what drives our behavior, what drives our communication. Mm, That's fascinating. Well, you saying all of those things makes me really curious what the, because I, I love the way you are able to unpack people. And I, I, even when we were emailing a little before, I'm like, what does she know about me already by my emails? <laughs> so but, much. But so you much. talk about jumping straight into level two. And sometimes when I start an interview, and I'm curious what this means about me, um, I, they don't even know I've started because I, I like to sort of, I call it like soft start. You know, I just basically talk about something that doesn't feel like today on the show, we have Vanessa Van Edwards. She's a, you know, I don't do that. I jump right into, I, I basically transition the conversation I transition into a conversation with something that they just mentioned so that it's not some sort of like, cause I feel like it puts people on guard more and I like yes. them to be more relaxed. And so yes. I lead in really soft and people sometimes don't even know we've started. What does that say about me? Uh, it says so much. And it says that I think, and tell me if this, if this is right, that you have an allergy to level one. So Right. So like I small talk, like it gives me hives. Like I really don't, I feel uncomfortable in that level one. Cause I, I can tell we're on small talk. And so you have this very interesting tactic, which I love, which is that you, you know, that if you ask the socially scripted questions, people will stay on social script. Yeah. And this is the biggest problem. I think with our video calls and our intros is we feel that we have to start with, Hey, good to meet you. I'm Vanessa. How are you? Or in a podcast. Okay. Now we have Vanessa Van Edwards on the show, which literally tells the person's brain, let's start on autopilot. And then, and I think you must know this as an interviewer, it's really hard to break them. Yeah. It takes a long time. It takes quite a while. I mean, it could take 20, 30 minutes before they get out of that zone. Who's got that time? Right, exactly. We've got an hour. We got to go there. So, and also, I think, and for people listening, there's actually some very easy swaps we can do. It's it's really just breaking a brain pattern. So, a brain pattern that we have is we meet someone and we say, "How are you? Good. How are you? Been busy? Busy? Yeah, it's been busy, but good. Right? Like, I feel like every answer right now is this. How are you? Oh, busy, busy, busy. Good, but busy. (laughs) Exactly. It's like, it's like a script. So what you can do is just slightly tweak it. And you don't want to jump right into too deep. This is a big mistake that I think people who are allergic to level one make. The mistake they make is they jump to level three. That's too much, right? Like, especially for my, my lovely introverts, my recovering alcohol people, it's too much. So the worst thing you can do is be like, so what's your greatest fear? What keeps you up at night, right? Like that's right. like too much, too fast. But what yeah. you can do is little swaps. So for example, one of my favorites is, so what's been good? Totally. It's a, it's a little different because it's not, how are you? And you'll see, people will go, Oh, Oh, what's been good. Um, yeah. You know what? I, my dad's in town or whatever it is. So what's been good. Um, instead of working on anything, are you been busy or what do you do? You can say doing anything exciting recently or working on anything exciting recently. And then this is my ultimate hack for my mm-hmm. lazy folks. I'm a lazy folk. So here's my lazy <laughs> folk. Okay. Monday and Tuesday, 
default to do anything fun this past weekend? Thursday, Friday, default to have any fun plans for the weekend? Right, right, Wednesday, right, right. Wednesday, just don't talk to anyone. When I visited Egypt, I was introduced to an expert aromacologist who explained the healing powers of various scents. I returned home with 18 bottles of powerful essences that unlocked specific feelings and had all sorts of healing properties. I became inspired to find a functional way to deliver them in a new consumer lifestyle product. Candles became my medium. Voyant means seer, a reference to the inner eye chakra one of the key energy points in the body essential to wellness and healing. Voyant is a doorway to openness and imagination, a catalyst in our daily journey. Whether you're connecting with others or enjoying alone time, Voyant strives to beautify the home and the soul to create a haven of peace and joy. The candle is delivered with a beautiful monogram 12-ounce stemless wine glass, which can be used after the wax is gone. My limited edition candle collection is available exclusively at voidbydanica.com. Easy. To skip it. Hump day. Nobody talks to anybody on hump day. Just like get through. It's like extra coffee. You know, You're like, I can't talk to you. I don't have a conversation starter for today. I'm so sorry. It's Wednesday. I just can't. What does it say about people that start at level one and like really are comfortable with level one. Like we've established we're allergic to it. It's, it drains me to no end. It drains Mm -hmm. me. I feel literally my life force energy just depleting. It's like, it's like my phone is on and every app is open and it's just. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So let's talk about each level. So for people who love level one, these are often, but not always my introverts. These Mm. are folks who have dipped their toe into level two and been judged. Mm. or been rejected, Mm -hmm. or they're ashamed of their level two. And so it's actually very important to respect people where they are and to safely and lovingly carry them up to level two, if that's where you want to be. So with level one, my people who love level one, you know, these people, these are my jokers Mm -hmm. or my folks who literally will not go past one or two word answers. Right. So you're like, so what do you do? Oh, marketing. Yeah. Cool. What got you into it? My dad. Uh-huh. <laughs> and um, how long have you been doing it? Five to 10 years. Like, like, and also, and they won't ask you back questions. You know, those people. Yes. Like, oh, oh, the worst. I mean, like I could literally be on question 12 and then I finally realize I'm on question 12 and I go, all right, I think I need to exit. <laughs> yeah. You're like, and bye. Mm. <laughs> okay. Oh my gosh. So- I have diarrhea. I have to go. That's a good one. I like that one. Um, or just, um, I will sometimes just like look around the room and be like, oh, I see someone by, um, (laughs) even when I'm alone works really well, actually. So for my level one people I want, so if you've asked three or four questions in a row and they're not asking questions back where they're answering really, I would say almost tight hiding answers. I want you to recognize that this is someone who has felt like they've had to go into hiding. Hmm. And that's because I think awkwardness dresses up as different things, right? I joke that I'm a recovering awkward person. Some people, when they're awkward or they're scared, they hide, they close in, they talk less, they don't want to be noticed. Other people and their awkwardness do the opposite. You might know these people too. Other people, they, they, they get big, they get dramatic, they get loud, they interrupt people. They're the life of the party, almost not in a good way. Mm. So this, if you, 
if you're into someone who's in level one, the best thing you can do is show them that level two is safe, but that means you have to go first. Okay. And this is a sort of beautiful challenge of you're with someone and they're giving you one or two answers. What if you dip your toe into level two? So a very safe way to do this is to think about um, what are your motivations? What are your goals? What drives you? So for example, you could maybe say, well, and I, I was just talking to someone the other day where she, she said that she's in a pivot. So she, I said, so, you know, working on anything exciting these days, right? So not what do you do? I didn't know what she did. Right, right. She said, you know, and I saw her like, take a moment. She goes, I'm a teacher, but mm. I could hear, yeah. I could like hear, yeah. I, said, I said, a teacher, is that excited about that? What's, what's there? Right. And she said, you know, right. I, I, I'm thinking about maybe doing something different. I've been moonlighting with a little, with a little craft shop on Etsy. Okay. Oh, that's exciting. Okay. Right. So that gave a window of a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of level two, and that you have a choice then to honor it and get excited for her or go into vulnerability yourself. Mm-hmm. So talking about some part of your history that surprises you or has been different, um, talking about a vulnerable part of your story, um, going into um, a motivation or a wish that you've been wanting or thinking about. I think that when we do that, we give people permission to go to level two with us. Mm-hmm. So would you do that after they said that, or would you, you or you, or you go first and say something like, you know, I used to be a mermaid for hire in high school to make money. Someone made have done that in the past. I don't know who that would be. And then, uh, then sort of opens the door for someone else. Or would you, after they say something sort of vulnerable and open and like go in, go that direction, would you then, then sort of chime in about yourself? Cause I get, yeah. Which one would you do? So I would do the one that makes you most excited, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're like, Whoa, I'm super into that. Like Etsy. Awesome. Die deep. If you're like, oh, that reminds me of one of my own stories. And that gets me excited to share that. That's like a way of following our, our authenticity in a very subtle way. So let's take mine, for example. Uh, and <laughs> we got we to do it. If you mentioned mermaid. So it, for everyone listening, Danica was like, do you have any weird interests like woodworking or wine? Or, and I was like, weird interests. And I, and I asked my husband who was sitting next to me, I said, do I have any weird interests? And he's like, no, I think you're pretty basic. I was like, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, I was like, I like to read, I like to hike. And then I remembered. So back in the day, and I will share this sometimes as a level two story is I, people will always ask me a very socially scripted question. How did you start doing what you're doing? Right. right. That is actually a socially scripted question that I don't love because we've answered it a million times before. Of course. And, oh, so of people course. ask I mean, me how like, many times you've answered that. I, I can't even imagine. Oh, hundreds, thousands. And so I will now do a little bit. I surprise them a little bit instead of giving my chronology. So one of the answers I might give if I'm feeling excited is, well, I've always been interested in alternative sources of income. In the heart of Napa Valley lays Somnium, which means to dream in Latin. The Somnium Vineyard Estate is an extension of the love and intensity that I pour into everything I do. To experience our wines, visit SomniumWine.com and use the code SOMNIUM to receive a $10 flat shipping rate. Please drink responsibly. For example, <laughs> when I was in high school, the only, so back in high school, I was looking for, I was always had the entrepreneurial itch and I, someone told me that I had mermaid hair, which mm-hmm. I was Beautiful. the biggest compliment someone could have given me. And she's like, you should just like, see if you can be a mermaid at like parties. And I was like, okay, and I was a lifeguard at the time. So I put out a little poster in my neighborhood that said, lifeguarding, mermaiding for hire. 
And people would hire me and I'd wear one of those like tails in the pool and I would lifeguard and I would pretend to be a mermaid and I'd cover myself in glitter. And I got paid like a hundred bucks for that. Oh and back in the day, that was a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was what, like 10 years ago? Um, yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. so fat. Well, thank you for sharing your vulnerable story. I probably should have checked whether or not you wanted to share that. I guess oh. you, you could have avoided that, but I thought you probably know that this question means I'm looking for some anecdotal sort of things about you that we could bring up that would be interesting. So that was and definitely interesting. Also, I wanted to talk about something different. You know, a lot of the times in my interviews, I do a lot of interviews. I'm very grateful to get those opportunities, but typically I get asked the same questions and I've never brought up my mermaid story. And so that was kind of fun to talk about for me. And remember, let's talk about this from a chemical perspective. So when we're interacting with people, there are three basic chemicals that we're interested in. And I would promise I'll keep the science lesson brief, just, just for us to understand. The first one that we're looking for is oxytocin. So oxytocin is a lot of things in our body, but very basically it makes us feel connected. So when we're making eye contact with people, when we handshake, when we touch, when we have me too moments, we have moments where we're like, oh, you do that. Yes, I do that too. Mm. That all produces this chemical that makes us feel the warm and fuzzies. And literally they've proven this. They've, they've synthesized oxytocin. They found that if people do nose sprays of oxytocin, like, oh, like yeah. nose sprays, they will participate, collaborate and give away more money in prisoner's dilemma games. Oh my God. There's, there's a whole market for this now. <laughs> I'm, I'm supposed to spray on the way into a charity event. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little terrified. Like that's going to happen. Like I always wonder sometimes if like I smell something weird in a hotel, if they're like pumping oxytocin into the room. So oxytocin, so oxytocin is like, that's why in some of those moments I'm, we're talking about like welcoming people, having me too saying, yes, yes, I have that too. The other thing that we're looking for is dopamine. So dopamine is very simplified, the chemical of pleasure. More than just pleasure, it's also the chemical of motivation. When we feel excited about something, we want to learn more. This is why when I answer a question that I haven't answered before, it actually gives myself dopamine, right? Like mm -hmm. I get to share a story I haven't shared. So my secret push for asking non-socially scripted questions, the secret reason I'm doing that is not only because you might find out something. It's also to wake them up that they might get to talk about something that gets them a little bit excited. And that in a weird way, makes you more memorable, right? Like it, it actually makes you they're like, Oh, she asked me good questions. I want to spend more time with her. Yeah. 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 As I prep for all my interviews, I, you know, read your book, but also I watch interviews too. And I heard that one of your, your life goal is to with Tom Bilyeu. And funny enough, I interview Lisa after this. So, um, what? Oh yeah. man, you got to give her a big cuddle for me. I, I know I'll have to do it from a zoom distance, but, um, but, uh, anyway, she, at the end of that, or I think it was at the end of Tom's, you said that your life goal was to wake people up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, we share the same life goal. Wow. I don't oh. think that we, we share exactly how we're going to accomplish it, but that is at the core. My life goal is to just wake mm -hmm. people up. So when you so said that, what do you mean by that? Um, by the way, I think that I, I love that you're approaching the same goal in a different way because your talents are different than my talents, right? Like, like if we were both doing it the same way, that wouldn't help as many people, but you're going to help different people and more people by approaching a different way. Thanks. So for me, for me, I think that, um, the only way that we can feel empathy, the only way that we can feel compassion the only way that we can feel less loneliness. And I am very worried about loneliness. I think that's something mm -hmm. that I'm, I think we're becoming increasingly more lonely. 
the only way that we can fight that in a non-chemical way, like not without drugs, is by knowing how to stay awake, having conversations that fuel us, having relationships that feel really um, supportive and incredible and giving, waking up and knowing that we can stay off of autopilot and we're going to be accepted for it. Mm-hmm. There's actually some really interesting studies about ambivalence. So I used to have a lot of writing where I read about toxic people, difficult people. Mm -hmm. And that's a fascinating set of science, right? How do we create boundaries around difficult people? How do we create um, walls and and say no to difficult or toxic people? But actually what's more insidious are ambivalent relationships. So ambivalence are those relationships where you could take it or leave it. You kind of like them, but you're not sure if they like you or you're not sure if you like them. You never feel particularly charged when you leave them. You see them on your calendar or you get a text from them and you're not like lighting up. Mm-hmm. Ambivalence is actually this sort of in-between. Okay. What they found is that they looked at police officers and they asked them about their relationships. And their prediction was that police officers who had difficult personalities in their workplace would have the least work happiness. But actually what they found is that that was not the case that police officers who worked with difficult people knew they were difficult. They (laughs) avoided them. They didn't invite them to lunch. They tried to not talk to them. Actually, it was quite easy for them to be like, that's not my person. The police officers who had the lowest rate of work happiness were the ones who had the most ambivalent relationship. These were people they worked with where they weren't sure, do they really support me? These are those people where you sit with them and they make a comment and you Mm. wonder, was that passive aggressive Mm. or was that supportive? Mm-hmm. Or you share good news and you're not really sure yeah. they're happy for you. Those relationships are so draining. And when we are asleep, when we are on autopilot, we don't get rid of them. We don't level them up. We don't get them out of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so that ambivalence, I don't want you to have any relationships or conversations where you're feeling like you're half mm-hmm. asleep. So I think that that's, that's my reason for it. What's your reason for it? Oh, well, thank you for asking. Um, mine is to, uh, wake people up to the true power that they have within them and, uh, how they, their perception is reality and that they're really in control of their destiny. And, um, I know perception is something that I, I keyed up on one thing that you had mentioned at some point, you said that, um, I think it was the only difference between, um, the only difference between anxiety and excitement is a mindset, which to me feels very much like perception. Um, <clears throat> so just to wake people up to perhaps other realities going on in the world to just get people to question things. It doesn't mean that you'll change your opinion. It might still stand true, but also it gives an opportunity to um, to grow because you can't grow if you don't learn anything new or change and evolve and grow. So yeah, being able to evolve and grow requires you to be able to be open-minded. And so by waking people up, um, they kind of are able to evolve and grow, which I think is what we're here to do. I think we're here to evolve and grow. Oh, I love it. So what's interesting is that I think that we're talking a little bit, both of us are talking about sort of giving names to our unconscious needs, desires, and opinions, right? Like making them conscious, like being awake to them. And one of the things that I found very empowering that got me out of a lot of my anxiety and my imposter syndrome was understanding that there is a hidden language that we're all speaking, (laughs) right? That we are constantly sending cues back and forth and we are incredibly contagious. So what research has found is that when we are around someone who is afraid, we will actually catch their fear without realizing it. 
So this is another reason why I think being oh. awake is so important. So this is, this is a really gross study. I talk about this in my TED talk. It's very gross, but I promise it's worth it. So here's what they did. Okay. They uh, brought people into the lab and they split them up into two groups. The first group, they had them run on the treadmill wearing sweat pads. So uh, <laughs> pads that would catch their sweat while they ran. Mm-hmm. And then run the treadmill, get really, really sweaty. They took those sweat pads. The second group, they said, we're going to take you skydiving for the first time. And they had them wear the same uh, new set of sweat pads. And they mm-hmm. took them up an airplane. They pushed them out of an airplane. And they had same them get, people. This is new people. Yeah. New mm-hmm. people. Yeah. So people, first time skydivers had to go up, wear these sweat pads and they were sweating fear sweat, right? Like yeah. imagine yeah. what you feel right before jumping yeah. out of an airplane. I did. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So that's sweat. Okay. That's yeah. They took these sweat pads and they asked unsuspecting new participants to smell them. <laughs> this is where it gets gross. Now imagine, I know it's like, it's real nasty. These participants had no idea what they were smelling. They literally would just, okay. And then they, it's like, here, I think this milk is off. Will you just tell, can you tell me if this milk is off? (laughs) Or like when someone said, this smells horrible, smell this. this." (laughs) Okay. So there's, they smell both these sweatpads and they put them in a brain scanner. They found when participants smelled the skydiving sweatpads, their own fear center, their own amygdala began to light, light up, began to activate. In other words, when we smell fear sweat, even though we do have no idea that it's fear sweat, we begin to feel afraid. This study has so many implications because it shows that there is this language that's happening with us, even on a chemical level, they didn't even see the person, that we are constantly picking up on each other's signals. And I think when we are awake, when we are ready for those signals, we know they are affecting us, we can take control of them. Sure. And so the study that totally changed my life. So I knew that cues were contagious, but I wasn't quite sure how was that when we see negative cues, we catch them and our body actually changes. Mm-hmm. So this happens not only from a chemical perspective, from a nonverbal perspective, mm-hmm. very simple. They had participants come into a room and they found that when someone spotted a cue of social rejection, so a cue of social rejection could be an mm-hmm. eye roll. It could be a scoff. <sighs> could be a negative tone of voice. Yeah. Great idea. When we spot that, our own field of vision increases. Literally, our pupils dilate to see more. And this is our body's way of going, "Uh uh-oh, is there another cue that's being sent to us? What's my escape route? And so I think that my other aspect of being awake is knowing that these cues are being sent to you, being aware enough to label them, take control of them, and then respond with confidence. That cycle is the most empowering thing we can do. I've never thought about that. That's a fascinating study to be able to like do it off of smell. Um, gross, but totally interesting. <laughs> what about what about energy and frequency? Mm. Like what about what about that when you can't smell them, but someone walks into the room and you can just feel them? There's this is where it's really hard to parse out energy versus cues versus scent. And we'll take video, for example, let's just look at video, right? Video. I cannot smell you. Danica, you look like you smell really good, but I don't know. Right. I just have to guess. Right. Smell amazing. Okay. That's what I thought. So (laughs) we take smell out of the equation. We take smell out of the equation. I am looking at a couple of different modes that you are transmitting things to me. So because we've removed smell, because we've removed touch, right? We can't touch. We can't shake hands. We can't give a hug. 
we are focusing on words. So verbal, vocal, and nonverbal. Mm-hmm. And so I think that when we talk about energy, what we're actually talking about is how we are transmitting signals with those three modes. So the first one is words, obviously the first few words we say, the second one is gestures, posture, facial expressions. Mm-hmm. And the last one is our vocal. So how we say our words. Sure. What research has found is about 60 to 90% of our communication is actually just in the nonverbal category. So when we say energy, I think when someone walks into a room, we are taking in their gait, like how they're walking through the room. We're taking in how they wear their clothing. We're taking in how they say hello. Here's a really specific example. When we are anxious, when we are nervous, when we are afraid, let's take those those skydivers, right? I guarantee you, if you were to ask those skydivers right before they jumped out of a plane to say hello, to answer their phone, hello? When we are anxious or afraid, our vocal cords tense. And I'm going to do it for you right now so you can hear. So right now my vocal cords are relaxed because I'm I'm Mm -hmm. having a good time. We're chatting. But if I were to go into anxiety and I tighten my vocal cords, you can actually hear that I go a little higher in my vocal pitch. And also Mm -hmm. I get a little bit more vocal fry. Mm -hmm. So when my vocal cords are tight, it's very, very hard to get out of fry. And so I talk higher and also you can hear it. And the more I tighten my vocal cords, the harder it is for me to get any kind of resonance. So what happens is when people are really anxious, they'll say, hey, hello. And we can hear it. Yeah. It's like the ready to cry sort of sound too. Oh yes. Actually, that's a very good point. Yes. It's exactly what we sound like. Definitely me when I'm about to cry. (laughs) So we're listening, right. Without even realizing it too. When someone walks in the room or hops on video and says, Hey guys, or let's take it down a notch. This is the most anxious. Hey guys. Okay. That's the most anxious. Yeah. And the next level, which I hear very often is someone answers at the top of their breath. And this is because they've been holding their breath the whole time. They're a little bit nervous. They go, Hey, yeah, totally. Hello. Yeah. And we're at the top, we're at the top of our breath. We are accidentally signaling, um, anxiety versus now I'm going to do the opposite. So what happens when I relax my vocal cords, and by the way, you can try this with me. At, so hopefully you can try this at home. If you don't, if you don't mind, this is a really helpful exercise. So what I want you to do, Danica, if you're willing is, yeah, I want you to take a deep breath and I want you to say hello at the top of your breath. So hello, hello. There you go. Way higher versus. So now I want you to take a deep breath and I want you to say hello on the out breath. It's going to sound like this. Hello. Hello. Right. Yeah, totally. Totally different. So if you try that, I want you to ask yourself, what voice are you using? Yeah. When you're on video calls, presenting, talking to your partner, talking to your kids in an interview, are you up here? Hey everyone. It's so good to see you. Or are you down here? Mm. That is the, that's energy. I think we're talking about energy. We can literally hear it. Totally. What's the exhale. Hello. Conveying. Cause obviously you said anxiety at the top. Is it conveying confidence or is it just relaxed? Is it power? Hmm. Okay. So this is, Oh, this is a a tricky question. I'm going to answer it with another study because I I can't help it, which is (laughs) (laughs) our our vocal cords are very tied to the rest of our body, our breath, our chest, the space we're taking up. So one study university of British Columbia found that winning athletes, when they win a race, they take up as much space as possible. So they expand their chest. They tilt their head towards the sky. They expand their arms. They often jump up and down. Yeah. When we take up space, it literally relaxes our vocal cords. It allows us to take in more breath. So it could be pride. It could be confidence. It could be relaxation. So when I'm at the lowest end, by the way, if I just, I'm going to um, scrunch my shoulders up and I'm going to tighten my jaw 
and I'm going to um, go like a defeated athlete. A defeated athlete typically tucks their chin to their chest. No matter how relaxed my vocal cords are, it's still really, really hard to give you my full vocal power. Like you can literally hear it. So the moment I maximize my, my space, lower my shoulders, I tilt my head up, I expand my chest. You can hear it in my voice. There are hundreds of these vocal cues that we are listening for. And so that energy that we pick up from someone, we go, oof, it's because we are listening for anxiety and we don't want to catch it. We don't want to listen to someone, mm-hmm. buy from someone, be with someone, date someone, love someone, trust someone if they're anxious. So can we cue ourselves? Like, as you're saying all these things, it seems like, okay, they all, you know, they'll say like, if you're stressed, just take a deep breath or whatever. So like, can we, if we know we get some social anxiety, do we arrive at the situation and just kind of go, hi, you know, like whether you're starting a call or whether you're going to meet someone or walk into a meeting or a job interview, can you cue yourself? And what are some of the, one of those things that you can do to cue yourself? Cause first off, there are you just to like give more information for cues, your new book, yeah. there are yeah. four different categories of the cues. And maybe you could say those and then, um, and then go into what we can do to like feel more relaxed and feel more confident. Yes. So you just, said it perfectly, which is, I think we must cue ourselves. We have to cue ourselves. Mm. And we don't realize that we are constantly cueing ourselves. When we are asleep, I think we don't realize how often we are setting ourselves up for failure or success, right? So part of this is understanding the cues you're sending to yourself. I love it when people say, oh, take a deep breath or pause for a second, because the secret benefit of that, the reason why we like to take a deep breath or we try to relax our body secretly. That also makes us sound better. So here's a couple of things that you can think about to actually cue yourself for confidence, to cue yourself for feeling like your most confident self. So the first one is, um, try to maximize the distance. This is a really weird one. It's a really weird one. I want you to maximize the distance between your earlobe and your shoulder. Oh yeah, sure. Sure. I know that sounds so weird, but what I often see on video is people hike up their shoulders and they tilt down their head and they go, Hey, good to see you. And they do that because when we're a little nervous, a little anxious, we try to take up as little space as possible. That study I mentioned with the athletes, losing athletes want to take up as little space as possible. Mm. Why? They don't want to be noticed when we're in shame or defeat. We want less people to see us. So we tilt our head in, we crunch in our shoulders and we're trying to protect our vulnerable organs. We tilt our chin down to protect our jugular. We cross our arms or put our, our arms tightly to our chest to protect our heart and our gut. Hmm. So we do that instinctively. And what can happen is we're getting ready for a meeting or a video call. And what, what are we doing? Checking our email. <laughs> So we have our, literally checking our email or checking our phone is the exact position of defeat by accident, right? Our, our shoulders are tucked. Our chin is tucked. Our arms are to our sides. We're blocking. And so people wonder why they're making bad first impressions or why they feel so awkward at the start of video call. It's because accidentally like this, and then hello, and they pop up and brought and broaden. So the first thing is I want you to maximize, especially in the first few seconds of interaction, the few first few seconds before an interaction, maximize this between your ear and your shoulder. Just that alone, it's going to open up your chest. It's going to make your head go high. It will help relax your vocal cords. Second, I love a deep breath. No hyperventilating. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want too much. Right. And we also have to be very careful to not be Elizabeth Holmes. So Elizabeth Holmes, Theranos, if you've watched that amazing documentary, Elizabeth Holmes, I think 
maybe read this study back in the day, which says the lower your voice tone, the more confident you're going to sound. And so she made her voice like this and she ended up talking like this, which sounded totally fake. So this is the lowest, right? I know it's crazy. This is the lowest end of your natural voice. And this doesn't matter if you're male or female, that the lower end of our natural voice does best. So breath, expansion, lowest voice. Can you fake it? I'm really wondering this because in this world today, there's so many manipulators, <sighs> narcissists, um, gaslighters. There's just so many people trying to take advantage of you. And, and we get duped. Like, I mean, I've been yeah. duped in my life with people and I'm like, man, I feel like I'm usually a pretty good judge of character and I can feel their energy or get their, pick up more, maybe more cues than other people. But I've been there before. So can you fake it? And does it take like a sociopathic personality perhaps that actually believes in their BS to be the faker? Like, how do we decipher in that world? What can we, how do we, how do we not get taken advantage of? So I've been there too. I've been (laughs) taken, I've been taken. This is why I started this research. I never, I never thought this would be a book. I did it because I got duped. I got duped and I said, never again, never, never again. What happened if you're willing to share? Yeah. So this, so I started this research 17 years ago, if you can believe it. Uh, This was the height of my awkward stage where um, I really trusted someone. I thought, again, I thought I was a pretty good judge of character. I had felt good vibes and good energy. Mm -hmm. However, there were red flags that I ignored. I had little hints about this person that I was like, uh, you know, that feeling, uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of like, oh, well, yeah. or, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm uh, sure that was fine. Yeah, was, yeah. He was having a bad day. Yeah, so yeah. I had a person that I really thought was great. And I, and as time went on, I kept ignoring the red flags. I kept ignoring the red flags. And of course I ended up, it ended up that he was completely lying to me that um, so many of the things he had told me were completely false or had a tiny kernel of truth. And I gave him a couple of months of very, what I, what I gave him my most intimate friendship. And I totally was lied to like hundred percent lied to. I'm sorry. And that was a moment where I realized I want to be able to trust my intuition yeah. Right? I want to know that my intuition is accurate. And so the first answer to the question, this is, this was my biggest fear with writing this book. A lot of this research I was using for me personally, right? Like I was using it as my own system. There are 96 cues in the book and I wanted to be competent and fluent in each of the 96. So I could spot them when I saw them and I could send the right cues myself. The problem is, is you can fake it, right? People can, they, these cues work, they can work. So my biggest worry with this book is that people would use this for evil and not good. Mm. They would use the powers in a bad way. The only positive thing is it is exhausting oh, yeah. to fake it. <laughs> it is Constant. really hard. In the short term, I think we can do it, right? Every, any cue can be faked in the short term, but in the long term, yeah. one, it's exhausting and authentic. And second, as humans, I, I had those little red flags that I ignored. So in the long term, it's impossible to keep it up. And thank goodness the research backs us up as well. So there was one study that very basically looked at fake happiness and real happiness, right? This is the most important one, right? If we have to, of all the cues we have to know, I want to know to spot real authentic happiness versus fake happiness. Right. Very simply, they found that they showed people, this is Dr. Barbara Wilde. She showed people pictures 
with a real smile and a fake smile. <laughs> so by the way, these are really hard to distinguish just from the naked eye. So a real smile reaches all the way up into our crow's feet. Our upper cheek muscles are activated, right? All the way up here. Yep. You want to feel it. You can put a, a pencil between your teeth and try to not let your lips touch. Like, oh, no, I think your eyes all the way up into your eyes. When those upper cheek muscles are engaged, that is real happiness. Anyone can fake smile. This is when the smile stays at the bottom half of the face, and then those cheek muscles are activated. It's actually very hard to tell this from the naked eye. So they show people pictures of real and fake smiles. They found that when they gave mood tests to participants before and after, people who saw the real smile caught the good mood. They literally answered more positively in their second mood survey. People who saw the fake happiness had no mood change at all. In other words, we are picking up on these cues. And when they are inauthentic, people have less of an impact on us. When we see fake happiness or fake anger or fake sadness, somehow our body, our gut, our intuition knows that we shouldn't be as impacted or affected by that person. So yes, we can fake it, but it will not last for long-term. And so the most important thing here is first cueing yourself Right, getting yourself in that right mindset before yeah. you begin to cue someone else. How can we tell if someone if someone is trustworthy or not? Okay, so let's talk about um, what I call red flags. So yeah. these are cues specifically that eh, aren't so great. That in when we look at the research, liars typically show them. So we did a really fun research experiment in our lab where we had people play two truths and a lie. So we asked them to submit. If you've ever played this game, it's such a fun game. Yep. Someone says two true statements and one lie. And you try to guess which is the lie. So we had participants send in two truths and a lie and we coded them. We wanted to see was there differences in the lying answers. And there were patterns, things that people did much more often on the lying statements and the true statements. So those are our red flags. They're things that our bodies tend to do in shame, deceit, guilt, and fear. So I'll go through a couple. These are the ones that I want you to kind of keep in your back pocket of, hmm, that was a little odd. Why, why did they do that? So uh, the first one is actually a vocal cue and it's the question inflection. So the question inflection is when we go up at the end of our sentence. So when we're saying something, it sounds like we're asking a question. Mm -hmm. So our everybody brains, in England is a liar then because everyone in England inflects up and asks a question. And my Kiwis, I've had, I've had New Zealanders say, oh, I tend to go up at the end of my sentence. So this is actually really important to know about yourself. And if, if this is part of your, your lexicon or your lingual patterns, it's really yeah. important to know because on the important statements, it's important that you say it, state it, don't ask it. The reason for that is because our brain knows that when the question inflection is used, we're asking for permission or we're asking if things are okay. So what they've found is that when participants are in a brain scanner and they hear the question inflection mistakenly used on a, used on a statement, they go from listening to scrutinizing. Literally, our brain knows, wait a minute, why was it? Why, why did they ask that? So in the two truths and a lie, they sounded like this. See if you can guess, Danica, which is my lie. You ready? I was born in Los Angeles. I love dogs. I'm a vegetarian. Right. Not a vegetarian. We heard this on hundreds of these lies. So the other thing that happens is that liars often ask their lies because they're asking, do you believe me? Does that sound true? So literally their brain gives them away. So the very first thing is one, if you were saying something important, make sure you state it. I do a lot of sales trainings and this is the number one mistake I hear on prices. Mm. They'll get, they'll be like on a roll. They're like, 
We'd love to have your business. We'd love to work with you. And the price of the service is $5,000. When you ask your numbers, ask your terms, ask your worth, you are begging people to negotiate with you. Yeah. You are begging. You're saying, I don't really believe this number. And you should question it too. Second is if you are hearing someone answer a very important question and they go up at the end of their sentence, red flag. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily mean someone's lying, but it means I need to do more research. So let's talk about one in dating, right? So you ask, you know, um, so how do you feel about your ex? Okay. That's a really important one, right? Not really sure. Yeah. Right, right, right. Oh, you know, um, we have a good relationship and um, it's been, it's been really great. And we, we talk all the time, right? Like that vocal pattern is something is off there, right? Like the words are saying some, the vocals something different. So question flexion is one red flag to watch out for. And it's very hard to fake that. So if you are actually lying, it's really hard to get rid of the question inflection. Interesting one, because it can be positive or negative and it's a lip purse. So this was the research mm-hmm. that kind of kicked me off. So I had just gone through this horrible friendship breakup with this person who had lied to me. And I felt so, I, the crazy thing is when someone takes advantage of you, when someone lies to you, you feel wrong, right? Like I felt so stupid and so dirty in a weird way, even though this other person had lied to me. So I'd just gone through this friendship breakup and um, I was watching, this was in 2005. I was watching Larry King on Lance Armstrong. <laughs> Sorry, Larry King live interviewing Lance Armstrong. It's Lance yep. Armstrong inter- on Lance Armstrong. Yes. Okay. And uh, Larry King was asking Lance Armstrong, have you ever doped? which spoiler alert, we know that Lance Armstrong has, has doped. Well, in 2005, he was insisting that he never had. So Larry King asked him, have you ever doped? And Lance Armstrong says a bold faced lie. I've never doped. And then he presses his lips into a hard line in a lip purse where his lips disappeared and he pressed his mouth together. And I remember watching it going, what was that? My spidey sense, my intuition was like, no way, <laughs> no way. Right. So like me, my gut was like, something's wrong here. And then I saw that lip person. I wondered what was that? So I began to look in the research. I, I didn't even have the name for it at the time. And I found this is a withholding cue, the nonverbal research. When someone is trying to keep something in, hold back, keep it together. The lip purse is if to say, don't give yourself away. Don't say too much. <laughs> Zip that lip. Zip is literally, yes, zip that lip, like, mm. and so uh, I, I was like, wow, what an interesting cue. So I began to watch for it. And I noticed that when people are in deep shame, sometimes deception really don't want to talk about something, they will lip purse without even realizing it. So the one to watch out for, again, it doesn't always mean a lie, but it means there is something more going on that someone is trying to just hold in, hold it back. The best thing in this one is to give someone permission. Right. If I see a lip person, I'll say, are we all good? Does this all make sense? Do you have any other questions for me? Anything else we haven't covered? It's totally fine if we go a little deeper. Mm-hmm. So the, the way we respond to cues is just as important as spotting it. Right. So you spot it. It goes in the mental bank of notes. And then it's how can I let this person feel more comfortable so they can actually open up to me? I think that's how we get out of that fake um, people trying to fake till they make it. It's we give them permission to tell us the truth, even if it's hard. Right. What about eye contact? What does that say? Okay. So eye contact is a beautiful cue and it's actually our, our human, the way that humans connect is we think, okay, if I'm with someone and I'm making eye contact with them, I'm literally close enough to make eye contact. This person's probably friend, not foe, and we should connect. 
So a really interesting chemical thing happens in our bodies the moment we make eye contact. So the moment we make eye contact, our bodies produce oxytocin, that chemical I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Again, oxytocin is so critical for our connections. Have you, have you ever been, Danik, this is an interesting question for you. Have you ever been with someone who literally won't make eye contact with you? At times, sure. Oh my goodness. Okay, so yeah. there's a reason why fubbing, you know, when someone looks at their phone and they're like snubbing you, oh, there's yeah. a reason why it like, ah, like it drives oh, it you hurts. crazy. Oh yeah, oh, that's yeah. happened before. It's like, are you yes. listening at yes. all? Are you, are you here? Are you yeah. with me? Or, care? or worse, overhead gazing where someone is like looking around the party or the room to see if there's anyone better to talk to. Oh, is you got to be really careful that you don't, you don't, you can't be distracted when you're talking to people. Cause all it says is I don't want to be here. <laughs> okay. There you go. So what's interesting about this, there's actually something chemical going on. So mm. when someone fubs you, is that the right way to use that word? Sure. Okay. If someone's fubbing you, um, or if, if someone's overhead gazing you, or you have someone who just won't make eye contact, if they're looking off to the side, the reason it irks you is because your body is saying, where is my oxytocin? We want oxytocin. It is incredibly important for our ability to connect. And so when we're not getting eye contact, our body chemically cannot catch up. And so our body's going, I'm with this person and I'm not getting the chemical I need to connect. Mm -hmm. This is one of the reasons why we're so, we, you know, you hear love addicts or people who are addicted to love love gives us oxytocin like that that deep gazing into someone's eyes all the cuddles all the kissing that's a lot of oxytocin so when we're with someone and we're not getting even a little bit through eye contact our body starts to revolt and the longer someone fubs us or doesn't give us eye contact the more we feel disconnected and disengaged and then what this do we is do? why it's taught yes and this is why someone you know you'll be with people and you're like i, I just couldn't click with them i just like didn't feel it yeah. It's probably because there wasn't enough oxytocin. Wow. Oh, I, I have to make a special note, special yeah. note, special note, which is I love eye contact, right? Eye contact is wonderful. It proves oxytocin. However, there is such a thing as too much eye contact. So have you ever been with someone where they're like boring into your eyes? And you're like, okay, I got it. A like, little. Yeah. There. I mean, I probably am one of those people that border on that because I really like to like, I am gazing into your eyes, Vanessa. I know that we have to go through a camera lens and through that, but I am. Um, maybe you're feeling the energetics of that. Um, but, uh, but I, I probably borderline on too much just because okay. it's, I'm trying to connect, right? So, so <laughs> trying to make sure they like, think I, they can tell I'm listening. For, for sure. And as an interviewer, that's incredibly important. An interview is not the same as a typical conversation, right? So in an interview for you as the interviewer to make 90 to hundred percent eye contact is amazing because you're saying, I can't participate as much verbally. Like if, if Tanika and I were in a regular conversation, we would be taking turns. Right? Like, <laughs> I would be, I would be asking you questions. You'd be asking me questions. Right? I had to learn that one the hard way, but yes, okay. I, I used to do more of that when I interviewed. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yes. Okay. So now I do this. Mm. Mm, mm, and you nod and I feel your eye contact. So as an interviewer, it's, it's your way of making up for you're not talking. And that's, and that feels good to me in a normal conversation. We are looking for about 60% of the time eye contact. And that's, that's mm. a statistic specifically for Western cultures. It's a little bit different if you're out of Western cultures, okay. but why this is important is because in a back-to-back -back conversation, it's okay to think about something and look away to process, Oh, what was his name and close your eyes and look Got down it, Yeah, where, and so don't feel pressured 
that you cannot break eye contact because that act, that pressure actually feels almost territorial in the interview. It's great. But in a back-to-back conversation, not. And the good news is we can even produce oxytocin through a webcam. So research has studied this uh-huh. thing. Goodness. This is why we all survived over virtual yeah, right. interactions for so long. Right. Is even Danik and I making eye contact with the webcam, we are still gifting each other oxytocin. Actually, I was trying to do it right at the end and trying to see if you caught it, but um, you taught me a really great trick um, when I was researching. Actually, it was kind of one of the things that made me go, I need to read this book. Oh my God. And then I read the book and then I was like, I'd like to talk to you um, was because in an interview, you really don't want to interrupt. That's really not a great tactic to um, keeping the flow and the respect and, and even listeners, they like to hear clean interviews where it's like question, answer, question, answer. It sounds cleaner. And so I picked it up when you listening to you about how to use a cue to basically get them to stop talking so that you can, and you're about, you're doing it right now you're like, uh, a little bit, you're kind of like insinuating that you have something to say. So I was picking that. So anyway, so someone will be talking and I'd be like, like open my mouth, right. Open your mouth and kind of like, almost be like, Oh, you almost said something, but you didn't. And it totally works. It's totally, it totally works. Okay. So let's talk about this. This is called the fish. open mouth or the fish (laughs) and you use it perfectly, which is how do you get someone to stop talking politely? Right. Right. Right? So you just did it perfectly, which is the very first one is you literally open your mouth like a fish. I'll make a sound effect just because we have listeners (laughs) with, right. That open mouth, it just cues someone's about to say something and they'll wrap up their thought. So the open mouth is the, is the first kind of least socially aggressive one. The second one you can do is a, is a very slight hand up. So just, I put my hand up with a, well, with a gesture so I can like hold my hand up like my palm, or I can even make a gesture like, oh, wait, one more little thing. And I hold my hand up. Like I'm holding a little thing, just like one little <laughs> thing. <I'm listening. laughs> and that just shows you, I just want to add one little tiny thing. Um, and so that, if you hold a hand gesture up, people will realize, oh, she has something to add. Literally it's my hands way of saying, I have just one little, little just note. I just want to make right there. So you can try that. You can try also the fish and the hand. So right? That's also a good one. And if you're in person, you can also do a very light touch. So a light touch on their hand or a light touch on their arm. That's the most aggressive. That's the most aggressive, but sometimes you get people who are like in their own world. You have oh yeah. To. And you just lay that delicate little hand on their forearm <laughs> or their hand. And you're just kind of saying like, Shh, I'm still here. Have you guys decoded texting? Cause we there's the short textures, the long textures, the emoji texters. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. So we have decoded one thing, which is so fun. Okay. So first I have a question for you before I explain the study. Are you ready? Sure. Of course. Is it fun or physically painful for you to add exclamation points? Fun. Fun. Okay. So what we found is, so this is research actually at a Princeton university, which looked at um, charismatic people. So what makes someone charismatic? And what they found is very simple, that highly charismatic people rank high in two traits, warmth and competence. And these are the most important traits we're interacting with someone. We want to know, can I trust you? And can I rely on you? So when we are interacting, we are constantly signaling or cueing warmth and competence. This happens in person, on video, on the phone, and in text. But in text, we're only using one mode of communication, verbal, right? We get to add a little bit of imagery if we're using emojis. So of the, of the cues, right, we have verbal, vocal, nonverbal, and imagery. Imagery is like the colors we wear, ornaments we use, what we're, what's in our backgrounds. So one quick study is I can almost always tell how warm or competent someone is 
based on their emoji and exclamation point use. So emojis are highly warm. People who add a lot of emojis or whoop, yay, fab, wow. Those are all very warm exclamations. <laughs> and typically I will highly warm people will add an exclamation point after every sentence and then have to remove one because it's too much exclamation points. Yeah, sometimes I do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, so highly warm. My highly competent folks, it's physically painful for them to add an exclamation point. And for them, they prefer data, numbers, charts, efficiency, getting right to the point. They love a period, right? It's a complete thought. And so when we do these text audits, we can look and see likely how they are rated by their peers based on the number of emojis and exclamation points versus percents, numbers, and periods. Wow. All of this stuff makes me wonder. I know because I know that, you know, you studying people and their patterns and, you know, really decoding people. It really makes me question and wonder this whole idea of are we holographic? What is consciousness? Are we basically sort of like, is the human body just sort of a patterned code that some, that things come out of it? Consciousness may be unique, but coming out of the body through this body and this human existence and this density, it has a pattern to it because everything is energy. What do Mm you, as I say all that, what do you think about, you know, what I immediately think about is consciousness and AI. Yeah. And if we're talking about cues, and I think I was thinking about this a lot while writing cues is, could this be used as a manual for robots? <laughs> right. I mean, what, what I'm trying to do and exactly in your words, is I'm trying to code cues that are unconscious sense. I'm trying to break down our behavior, which is all energy into a database. Really? Mm-hmm. And that's what I'm yeah. doing. Right. And that scares me a little bit Yeah, because before I think a lot of people had thought about charisma as sort of this energy, right? Charisma. It's a thing. It's that feeling, that magnetism you get from someone. It's that X this factor. Book, I, mm-hmm. Yeah. X factor. Exactly. They have it or they don't have it. In this book, I take a stand, which, you know, I was, I was a little bit scared to do, but it's how I feel which is, I don't think charisma is an X factor. I think it's a formula, 100%. I think it's a formula. So if charisma is a formula and anyone can learn it and we can use specific cues like a recipe, and that is the metaphor I use when I teach cues is charisma is a recipe and everyone's cake tastes a little bit different. So you can sprinkle in the warmth that you like a little sweeter versus a little bit more savory, right? Like everyone has a little bit of flavor, but really it's a formula. Isn't that how we could also create AI or artificial intelligence to literally use it as like a database to pull from? Could we create AI influencers who literally just use this database to tweet out, share, and create videos with the right body language cues, vocal cues, and nonverbal cues where we're like, yeah, charismatic. So I think the answer is kind of yes. I don't know if it was a yes or no question, but yes, I think that I'm trying to quantify an it factor or an energy to say this is attainable, but it means anyone could attain it or anything, anything could attain it. So do you believe then that an AI, like AI could be just like a human, indistinguishable and could be called human? Yeah, I think that... (sighs) Here's one little quick study about literally robots, okay? 
And this, this, and this was like, yep, it's, I think that they could be described as human in the sense of very simple study. They showed people pictures of robots, like little graphics of robots. And in one image, the robot's head was straight up and down. And in the next image, the robot had a slight head tilt. So slightly laterally to the side. Mm -hmm. They asked people to rate the robot on human tendencies. The simple head tilt made people ascribe more human tendencies, including cuteness, to the head tilt. That was the only difference between the two graphics. That is because all they did was add one human cue to the robot. A head tilt is a universal sign of openness. When I'm trying to hear something better, I tilt my head to expose my ears. Dogs do this as well, actually. Yep. I, I tilt my head to expose my ear. And so we know that if I'm listening to you and you do this really well as an interviewer is when I say something interesting, you might tilt your head side, side to say, oh, I, I hear that. Mm -hmm. It's literally you non-verbally showing you to hear me. So just adding a head tilt to a graphic of a robot makes us feel the robot is listening to us. What could be more human? Okay. Well then what are we? Oh, and next time on our episode, we'll be talking about <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if that's true, then what are we? And especially, I think I've heard you say that you don't believe in psychics and that kind of stuff. So like, if you don't, that's telling me perhaps that you, you know, the quantum field is not something that it's the cue that passes through the field to you, but not actually meaning like, you know, what about the idea about you think you might not believe so much and you think about someone and then they call you and that that's psychic or someone walks into a room and no, you can't see them yet at all, but you feel them you because because there's no cue there for it. So I feel like what you're saying is that there has to be some kind of interaction to create the cue connection. Um, that Yes, that is exactly how I feel when I say I don't believe in psychics. What I mean is I think that our cues are so powerful that someone could walk into a psychic's office or a fortune teller's office and by pheromone, cue, gesture, wrinkle patterns, I mean, we won't even get into that, but I think even our wrinkle patterns can tell us about our personality, the size of our hands, the shape of our face. Uh, a really good psychic is actually just a really good cue reader. Man. So that's what I mean is that I think that our cues are so powerful that we can tell so much about someone, by just even hearing them, but especially looking at them now, having someone, you think about someone having them call, that's maybe my next set of research. Interesting. Right. Okay. Mm. Then what are we? We'll finish it up here and just be like, what are we then? Mm. I think we are beings desperate to feel not alone. The whole reason that we send cues is to desperately signal to others. I want to be loved. I want to be accepted. I want you to be a, be a being with me. And so all we are, I think, are these cue beings that are just looking for other people to read and mirror their cues so we don't have to feel alone. I love that. Thank you. Maybe you're right. Who knows? We might have to die to figure it out. And I if think, we die, we'll figure it out by that. there's nothing else. <laughs> I think I got to think about it. And I got it. I got And by the way, if we ever do another episode, I'll bring my fortune teller statements for you to try oh, to prove some fortune teller stuff for you. Yeah. I'm super into that. So I'd be very fascinated. And I'm open. I mean, my level of openness is very high. So I would lo love for you to prove me wrong or try. Let's do it. Let's okay. do it. 
All right. Oh my God. Thank you so much. You're fascinating. <laughs> and your books, I mean, Captivate was amazing and I can't wait to read cues and I'm just going to be a cue and machine or at least a cue reading machine. A cue reading machine. Well, thank you so much. I was so excited when I saw that you were reading Captivate. It just made my month. And so oh. I'm just honored to be here for everyone who's listening too. Thank you for being open-minded with us. And I'm just so grateful. So thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks everybody for listening to the Pretty Intense podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard today and you want to hear more, please click on the subscribe button.